Дорогі українці, завершується цей довгий і важкий день. Перш за все, мої співчуття рідним і близьким тих, чиє життя забрала Росія. Забрали російські удари. Ми робимо максимум, щоб захистити людей. Russian air attacks on Ukrainian cities continue almost nightly. Ukraine's allies and proxies take the fight to Russian soil with a drone attack on Moscow and a bold incursion into Belgorod. Anticipation builds for a long-awaited Ukraine spring offensive in the east, and NATO gears up for a landmark summit in Vilnius next month. What can we expect in the spring offensive? What kind of security guarantees will Kyiv receive in Vilnius? And how much staying power does the West support for Ukraine have? Well, we got just the guests to shed light on these and other questions about Russia's war against Ukraine, so stick around. Hello from my temporary office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Radical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UC McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. is Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, an independent, bipartisan, and bicameral commission of the United States Congress. Welcome back to The Vertical Ball. Hey, Brian, good to be back after a long hiatus. Yeah, it's good to have you back after such a long hiatus. And also joining us from the beautiful and magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn is James Scher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book, Our Diplomacy and Soft Collusion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Welcome back to The Vertical, James. Thanks for staying up late with us. Thank you and greetings on this chilly Tallinn evening. It's a, it's a very hot Washington afternoon. Yes, here. it is. Um, <laughs> yes. So, so James, you and I just returned from Ukraine. Uh, I think it was your second or third trip. Uh, it was my first. Paul, you, of course, have been going in and out for a while now. We've all been talking to our contacts. So basically, to get the ball rolling, I wanted to take the temperature on where we see things at the moment, what we expect to see in the spring offensive, uh, what Ukraine's hoping for in the Vilnius summit and what they can realistically expect. And then in the second half, what I want to do is I want to dive into this issue of staying power of Western support and look specifically at some of the initiatives that the U.S. Helsinki Commission is working on that, that Paul, I know you're deeply involved in. Let's start with James. Uh, James, I was stuck by several things in Kiev. Uh, of course, there's the resiliency of ordinary Ukrainians, which you cannot help but be very impressed by. The other thing that struck me is the confidence of Ukrainian officials. They're projecting very serious confidence about the spring offensive, and there also appears to be an all-out push to get some very real mo- movement uh, toward NATO membership in Vilnius. James, what were your main takeaways after this trip? Um, first, I can't uh, forgive my vanity. I have to say that your reference to my second trip to Kiev, presumably you meant second trip since the war started. Yes, uh, that's of course. <laughs> of course, that's what I <laughs> In about 120 overall. Yes, no. Uh, I, um, it, you talk to two Ukrainians, you get three opinions. I mean, this is normal. The more thoughtful they are, uh, the more arguments there are. Uh, I think particularly off camera, the mood is, um, is, it ranges between soberly optimistic 
and somber. Um, my, uh, my clear sense from talking to the defense people, real professionals, is that they are soberly optimistic about the offensive. Um, there are exaggerated expectations about this offensive, which they've never had. I think their maximal aim with the offensive is to change the dynamic of the war. Nobody believes that this series of offensives is going to conclude the war, but there is a real knowledge of just which defenses that Russia has constructed are real and which are more virtual. Which of those impressive fortifications we see every day in satellite photographs are solidly built, which are made out of papier-mâché, as even Igor Gherkin uh, talks about a lot, that is shoddy construction. How much of it is actually manned? Um, and of the part that is manned, how many of these soldiers are well-trained soldiers who can actually conduct a defense? How many of them are half-dead? Um, the main delay that we've seen, in my view, doesn't stem from the from the fact that equipment from the West arrives slowly. That is one reason. The main reason, in my view, is that all of this is being very carefully probed and assessed. I also yeah, that's that, my sense too. It's a second question you raised, but it relax it, re it relates. The attacks on Russia, they look like random buccaneering things. They're not. They're part of a strategy. Uh, and I think there are three aims behind it. One is to disorientate uh, the enemy so they don't quite know what to look for. But the second, again, is to just probe the, res the robustness of Russia's internal, uh, internal defense, its ability to react to surprise, its resilience. It's not just been one way to raid across into um, Bill Gornot. Uh, but at least two, um, which have just shown up, the, the complete inadequacy of border defenses. And the third, I think, is to showcase the incompetence of the authorities to the Russian people, which is why the official response has been, by and large, to ignore it. Uh, now, you know, all of this, so there is shaping going on, but there is also what the Russians call Razvietka Boyem, there is intelligence by means of combat taking place. And it all fits, I think it's designed to fit into uh, the wider pattern. So at that particular level of things, I'm rather impressed by what is being done and how it is being assessed. Now, uh, you've been, you all, you've also been visiting uh, wartime Ukraine fairly regularly. I think you've been in in and out, I think, four times, uh, as far as my, I understand. Um, you're going back fairly regularly. Anything you, you would add? You're talking to your contacts as well. Uh, this is being discussed in the commission pretty intensely, I imagine. What what are How do you see the situation on the ground right now? Yeah, I mean, I think James described it really well. I mean, I I, um, I guess I, I'm really interested in that kind of stuff, too. I pay attention to something else as well, and that's kind of like, you know, what are the, what are the reactions to what we've been doing and, and how are we viewed? My, my big takeaway on my last visit, which was about, you know, a month and a half ago, 
was this kind of constant worry among Ukrainians of, okay, yeah, thanks so much for these weapons. We couldn't possibly have gotten this far without these weapons, but, you know, do you really want us to win? Because you seem to be holding back on all kinds of stuff. Um, and a lot of our weapons requests haven't been delivered. Things haven't been delivered fast enough. There was definitely just a few weeks ago, um, prior to the announcement about F-16s, which I think, you know, we'll get into, but really kind of changed the dynamic in Washington, I think, which, you know, I, I haven't been to Ukraine since that announcement, but I think also from hearing from Ukrainians, that was extremely welcome. But uh, I, I think just as early as a month ago, there was kind of a feeling of, is the West going to, is the West setting us up for failure? Is the West going to push us into a counteroffensive that we're not ready for, and they're rushing us, and then we're going to do it and it's going to fail, and the West's going to say, hey, look, see, you know, you, you've kind of hit your limits, time to sit down with Russia and make a deal. That was the pervasive feeling only like three weeks ago. Now things, I mean, since since the announcement of the F-16s, since, I mean, Secretary Blinken's talking in Helsinki today, and he's actually mm -hmm. using like like NAFO talking points, like, like, mm -hmm. like a big joke, because he's saying like, well, people are saying that, you know, Russia's the, the second strongest military in Ukraine. And it's like, that's a, that's a theme, you know, like right. that's stuff we used to like sort of joke about. And he's like, so it's, it, it kind of feels like, you know, and, and of course, storm shadows have been sent by the Brits and all that kind of stuff. So there's, there's just in the last month, I mean, a month and a half, a month and a half ago, it felt really sort of dismal. I mean, in, in particular, the Ukrainian view of the West. Now it seems like we're kind of getting our, um, getting our stuff in order. That that said, I think it is a response to the Ukrainian criticism. You see what I'm saying? So I certainly came back feeling like we need to do something. And that's when I think we wanted to talk about it later, but that's when we introduced the Ukraine victory resolution. That's when we started working on right. a lot of other stuff because of this deep set feeling among Ukrainians that the West, that, you know, kind of questioning whether the West wanted Ukraine to win. I, I I mean, what what do you sense a change in mood on the hill? You got your 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 ear pretty close to the ground over there on the hill. Are you sensing that there's been a shift? Are you pretty confident about the 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 sustainability and staying power of our support right now? Oh yes, I'm I'm more confident than I think I've I've sort of ever been. I mean, you know, again, it's not just the momentum you get out of the administration from these decisions. And I really want to emphasize how big F-16s was. You know, we've sent an advocacy letter basically urging the administration to give F-16 senators. So a bipartisan group of senators did it. There were other House letters that did it. So it was like, you know, Congress was kind of up in arms about this. And yet still, we didn't really expect it to happen because, you know, you know how long the tanks debate took. I mean, it was like, right. it felt it felt like an eternity. So the fact that, like, suddenly it came around almost, the you know, the dam broke within 24 hours, it felt like, of us yep. sending our letter that it was like, oh my God, like, wow, maybe there is some seriousness here. And that was really welcome. The other things that have changed on the Hill, I'd say, is one huge thing that I, I know it seems almost silly, maybe for um, for a for a, you know, a, a, an analyst like James. I don't know. But uh, Tucker Carlson losing his post is massive. I mean, I mean, it, you know, it's 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 really it's really hard to um, describe just what a deleterious influence he had on a huge number of members of Congress who were always scared, basically, that, you know, they'd make a vote according to their conscience uh, or, or really, honestly, according to the national security interests of the United States. And then that would end up on Tucker and they'd be roasted and stuff like that. I mean, Tucker is almost entirely vanished. I mean, he's never mentioned any longer. Um, and this has wildly reduced the influence of some of these 
you know, fringe members who, you know, everybody kind of wanted a little bit to push to the side anyway, but whose voices were amplified via Tucker right. and, and, and his new and his new deal with Elon Musk is 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 almost irrelevant to the big um, to, to, to American politics, because the people that Tucker was reaching before via Fox News are not people on Twitter. So so the right. fact that the fact that Musk now or, or, or Tucker is now has this exclusive deal with Twitter. Um, well, that's good for him and, uh, you know, he'll make some money, but he will not be reaching kind of this, you know, kind of, let's say middle America, right. Which, which he once was kind of the avatar of. I have a question. Yeah. I think you got to wonder what the Russians are going to do for content. Now that Tucker's on, go ahead, James. I have a question for Paul. On the one hand, we understand that Tucker Carlson has, uh, signed a contract with Elon Musk. On the other hand, we have just learned uh, that the Pentagon has awarded a contract to um, to Tesla, uh, to uh, SpaceX, to provide uh, to provide the next um, round, the next generation of Ukraine's satellites. What is going on there? Uh, how, among serious people, is Musk assessed? Uh, because for me, has been. Uh, let's say a big security dilemma in himself. How do you assess it? Without a doubt. I mean, you know, he's he's viewed widely as, uh, I mean, you know, dangerous to unserious to kind of just shake your head to. I mean, he's 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 rarely viewed in a positive light. Let's say. I mean, and 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 I think that a lot of the a lot of this kind of contractual stuff comes from the fact that the United States very unfortunately locked itself in with SpaceX. I mean, a lot of, we already have a number of contracts via NASA. Of course, the Ukrainians rely on Starlink. This this became a problem, you know, a few months ago when Musk was threatening to turn off Starlink at a certain, you know, once once the Ukrainians reached a certain um, point of, of, of penetration into their occupied territory. Um, and, and in fact, it seemed like did at certain points and it, and it did create a ton of discussion on the Hill of like, wow, what a weird policy problem we're facing where Starlink is absolutely critical to the advance, you know, to the advancing of the Ukrainian military, to the combat capabilities of the Ukrainian military, it's digital infrastructure. Um, and yet it's not like we're necessarily supplying it and we're not at war. So like, like how, how can we hold must to this? Whatever happened, it seemed to have cooled off. Because okay. that that issue has just vanished from the agenda over the last four or five months. It's not been reopened. Musk has also seemed to have pretty much stopped talking about Ukraine. So I I, I wonder personally whether there was some kind of administration intercession where they kind of said, look, this is the way it's going to be. And you can go and screw around with Twitter or whatever else it's going to be. But you can't screw around with this as a core U.S. national security interest. I don't know. Could I make a, an observation of my own uh, about the Biden administration? I think the record has been consistently, they first dig their heels in and say, we absolutely will not do something that everybody uh, understands, as ne everybody else understands is necessary. Then they gradually move their position and they finally, uh, they finally give in, but by half measures and almost too late. And the latest seems to be over NATO membership for Ukraine and what is discussed in Vilnius, because if you remember just a couple of weeks ago, they were saying a firm, Biden was giving a firm no to membership, no to hard security guarantees, and no to long range weapons for Ukraine. And now already you could read 
uh, even yesterday and today, the, the position about security guarantees in NATO appears to be softening behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah, and we heard that from U.S. officials in Kiev, James, too. As well. This is characteristic, but of course it doesn't really create confidence where it matters, and that is in Ukraine. And it, it goes a long way, if I and can mention this, at the risk of getting ahead of things. The, the major difference, I think, in the context of the Vilnius summit compared to the uh, 2008 Bucharest summit is that up until now, the United States has been in the lead. It has been setting the agenda. It has been pushing. Uh, it has been the most proactive. What we have seen since the war started, perhaps even before, uh, and I hear this even widely acknowledged in Western Europe, is that Eastern Europe is setting the pace, setting the agenda, the most proactive. Western Europe is slowly, unevenly catching up. You heard Macron's recent statement about uh, a pathway to NATO, and the United States is the most reluctant, is the one place where the par the old paradigm seems in many respects still to be stuck. Mm. And this is, this is new. Um, and I wonder what impact this is having on the United States, uh, because it's unprecedented. Well, the administration, certainly, and I, and I think that's also a product of the administration relying heavily on Berlin and trying to maintain kind of this strong relationship with Berlin. I think I think it's carrying a lot of water for German concerns so that the Germans don't necessarily have to be so forthright about them. You know, um, uh, I think that the administration is, you know, again, I, I, I have very little sympathy for this, I want to say, and I'll talk about Congress in a moment, but I think the administration is trying to maintain and would tell you it's trying to maintain G7 uh, cohesion and that and that it's deeply worried about what some of these other countries would do if it wasn't expressing their concerns kind of for them so it gives them kind of an opening to be the good guys right. um, so viciously these others are moving ahead of them right and 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 that's and that's but but i guess what they would tell you and again i i, I don't necessarily have sympathy for this but i guess what they would tell you yeah. what including the germans yeah, and what they would tell you is this is by design that they that they that they would like the Europeans to lead, and they're providing an opening for the Europeans to lead. And when the Europeans, when the Western Europeans don't want to do something, then they're willing to be the bad guy. Now, I don't I don't think that that's like I mean, Congress. I think generally, again, not just me, but I think the Congress is in a different position. I think there's a strong bipartisan core of Congress that would really like the United States to take on uh, a more pronounced leadership role and stop delaying. Um, and I think that that's expressed with a lot of the letters we send. I think it's expressed if you go to a lot of the hearings. Again, it's Republicans and Democrats. It's both parties. And I think that congressional pressure has led uh, the administration to change course as well. So it's not just kind of Central and Eastern Europe. I think it's also led them to push allies to be tougher. Um, so I think Congress has been playing a really productive role here as well. But I, if I had to like really, I think you're exactly right on the administration's mo i would just think that their their reasoning they would tell you and again i think that this is not entirely the case i think some of it is also just kind of like a oh i don't know do we want to do this do we want to do that there's escalation there's risk aversion there's all this kind of stuff but i think what they would tell you is they want to make the room for european partners to lead mm. i wanted to throw out something to both of you before we go on to talk about vilnius and that is are the expectations too high for the spring offensive right now? James, you basically laid out a very realistic 
roadmap of what to expect in the spring offensive and what the Ukraine, how the Ukrainians are approaching. But there is this in the popular mind, this conception now that this, this spring offensive is going to maybe end the war, which of course it's not. Are we setting our expectations too high? And if Ukraine does well, but not spectacularly well, are we in a dangerous spot now? How, how do you see that, James? Well, uh, a lot of this, these inflated expectations, much of it, from what I can see, is media-generated. Mm-hmm. In the circles I talk to, both inside Ukraine and in Europe, I don't hear this lack of realism in these inflated expectations. Uh, nobody seriously believes that this is going to be the end of it. The When I say change the dynamic, the most you can hope for is that if the breaches made are the right ones, you end up with what we've seen elsewhere, chaotic retreats. The Russians have only had, since this began, one well-planned and organized retreat, and that was in Kherson, and that was because it was organized by General uh, Sorovikin, who was ultra-competent, and because he had the authorization of Putin to carry out a retreat. So there was a plan. Everywhere else, the orders are usual Soviet-type orders, don't, not one step back. And if you have to go back, there's no plan. There are no orders. People run away. There's panic. Whereas all the Indian retreats, if you look at Bakhmut, they have all been very disciplined and well carried out. Now, um, so if there are breaches, it's a reasonable expectation that there is going to be certain knock-on and cascading effects. How much? Uh, if you get to the level of a kind of operational level cascading effect, uh, then um, then this then this war is uh, is on its death spiral. Um, I don't think we're going to get that far. But that's I, the 1917 scenario. I well, I, I certainly don't think we're going there. That's kind of strategically entire army breaking up. We might. I mean, we don't know until it starts. But then you raise the second question. Um, if that is in prospect, if we see what is in prospect is the expulsion of Russian forces, not only from the post of 24 February positions, but from many of the post-2014 positions, uh, what is the policy response in Washington and other Western capitals? Is there still, as I fear there is, a primordial dread of what Putin will do and a Russian escalation that people will try to say, well, you have to stop now. And what happens then? So that's one of the Ukrainian worries. The bigger Ukrainian worry is that there will be no follow-through in help for Ukraine even after the end of the war. And my biggest worry is that if things go spectacularly well militarily for the Ukrainians, that Biden, like a previous American president, will say, mission accomplished, and they will say, bye-bye, Congratulations. And now they can all go back and do what they want to do, which is concentrate exclusively on China, whilst Ukraine is facing an economic ruin. 
uh, and a whole host of other issues. You know, there, there have been such demographic changes that some now estimate the Ukrainian population, which before the war had been in the mid-40 millions, uh, that it's now estimated as being as low as 28 million people. Uh, so, you know, the very similar to 1945, the same anxieties in Europe, the same sentiments expressed, war is over, the Wicked Witch is dead, now we can all go back home and start building more motor cars and radios and refrigerators. Uh, and those two years between 1945 and the establishment of the Marshall Plan in Europe literally created nervous breakdowns and physical breakdowns amongst ministers because people were that apprehensive. Well, Ukrainians are looking at all of this and becoming more and more preoccupied about what is this country going to do after the war. And that, in my view, even more than the immediate Russian threat, is the main imperative for uh, full integration of Ukraine into Western, in, into the whole Euro-Atlantic community, fully anchored and integrated. I want to dive into that in, in, a, in, in a bit. Paul, what's your sense on the Hill? I mean, how much is riding on this offensive? If Ukraine is too successful, as James suggested, it might create a mission accomplished moment. If they're not successful enough, it might create a see now you have to negotiate with the Russians uh, moment. How do you see, how much do you see riding on this now? I, I don't see, I mean, look, first of all, like nothing succeeds like success. So, I mean, I mean, the reality is every single time, you know, the West has kind of consolidated and gone, you know, all in for Ukraine, it's been post success. Like, like there's a, you know, the, the, the battle of Kiev, uh, the Kharkiv and Kherson offensive, um, I mean, so on and so forth. It's always followed Ukrainian success. So there's kind of, there's definitely a feeling of like, okay, so what's brand new about this conflict? Of course, for, you know, James, you and me, I mean, it's the, it's the recognition of kind of the, the major national and international security um, implications of this. But for your average American, I think that it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're kind of numb to tragedy. There's just so much tragedy in the world and so many people that have been sort of murdered, killed, uh, horrible things happening all over the world. And when when that is emphasized, there's kind of a little bit of a, oh, that is terrible. Um, but, you know, whereas like, what was so new, I think, about Ukraine for all of, for Americans, for everyone, was just the heroism, the courage, this, it, they're fighting back, they're winning. How are they doing this? This is amazing. I mean, this like speaks to kind of the, the spirit of the underdog, you know? And I, and I, so I really think that just like any success, it doesn't need to be the end of the war. It doesn't need to be winning the war, but there does need to be some demonstration of success. Obviously, so, you know, a, a, a failure, an abject failure will hurt. There will then you know, kind of be a spirit of, uh-oh, maybe they have, you know, reached their limits. But but, but it doesn't need to end the war. Um, if it is a raging success, expect, don't expect a mission accomplished moment. Expect like a holy crap, you know, like let's get them in NATO. Let's do, I mean, it's like there, there's only, to me, there's only like victory, creating more victory, creating more victory, creating more victory. That's, that's. That's and the, that's the sense you get on the hill. That's what you're. That's, that's the sense you get on the hill. The more, the more we win, the more we will win. The worst, Paul and Brian, I think, is that if Ukraine fails even by its own sober expectations, and by the most sober Western expectations, 
all of those people in advisory circles, the expert community, the Western commentary, all those accommodationists and realists who have been relatively quiet and submerged. Yeah. And um, making, uh, you know, sort of elegant points that are beside, be, uh, beside the point will reemerge, will regain confidence, and the initiative will shift away, uh, will shift fundamentally away from supporting right. Ukraine to cutting our losses. Right. The many damn cutting our losses. Uh, and so, you know, a, a lot does ride on this. And the Ukrainians know it, which is another reason why they're not rushing into things. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, I mean, you have to, and, and, and I mean, it's kind of fair in one sense, because you do have to win battles to win a war. You know, like, I mean, if you just, if you lose everything, then, I mean, people are going to start feeling like, okay, what the heck's going on here? I mean, and, and I think James is exactly right. There's, you know, they're, they're chomping at the bit. The, 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 the guys who have been kind of uh, all around town, who have been discredited by Ukraine's heroism and courage and ability to, uh, you know, punch the Russians in the face, you know, are, are, are they're just waiting for their moment to come back out and see, see, I told you so. You know, right. and I mean, they're 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 looking for it and we can't give it to them. But it doesn't it doesn't require, you know, total victory right off the bat. No, all it all it all it requires is demonstrated successes. Um, and the Ukrainians, in one sense, I think, you know, again, I think they're planning for that. You know, I think they understand that they have to demonstrate success. Um, but if there is somehow if, if the if the incredible scenario comes where the Russian army does break and there is victory, I mean, I, 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 sky's the limit. You better believe we'll be jotting down bills for a, you know, see see what all we can get away with. Get them in NATO. Get them in the EU. Yeah. Get them Marshall Plan. Oh well, yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna jump on that, Paul. Before we do, before we make a, a, a break into the second part, I did want to get some sense of what we expect in Vilnius, James. The vibe I was getting in Kiev, listening very carefully to what what U.S. and other Western officials were talking about was it is we should not expect Ukraine to get map. We should not we should basically expect maybe the creation of a NATO Ukraine commission, which would allow Ukraine to invoke Article four, not five obviously, but four. Um, and perhaps some some bilateral security guarantees from NATO members. Now my question there is which NATO members? All security guarantees are not created equally. James, was that your impression too? And what do you uh, what do you expect? Well, I think if that is the result, if that is the result, Ukraine will be profoundly demoralized and Russia will be emboldened and they will carry on. That does not mean that the only alternative result has to be, you know, something like map. But there has to be, and I think opinion is changing very rapidly on this in Europe. There must be a statement that leaves Ukraine in no doubt about its membership prospects and leaves Russia in no doubt that its actions have made Ukraine's membership of NATO, the case for it now, unanswerable and inevitable. The whole issue of timelines is different from the issue of creating what even Macron calls a credible pathway to membership. So if we just end up with some recycling of the Bucharest, old Bucharest language, and some new commissions uh, s stuck on and, and, you know, fresh icing on a stale cake, this is going to have 
this is going to be not only demoralizing for Ukraine, it's going to damage our strategic interests, in my view. But I am, I am becoming more confident that the results will be more encouraging than that. Yeah, there, there seems it seems to be moving in that direction. Paul, what's your sense? Uh, we've been using the language Ukraine needs to receive concrete and specific conditions for NATO membership at Vilnius. That's so, That's yeah. I, well, I mean, <laughs> I guess we haven't we haven't been saying map. We haven't been saying roadmap. We haven't because there's all the sort of negativity around that. But right. but but you know, I mean, it, it needs to be that you know. So I mean, that's 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 how yeah, that's the language we're using, and that's kind of how we've been feeling. I think how Ukrainians been feeling. So I I I just I reiterate everything James says. I think it's this is really critical, and it, it needs to happen. Yeah. No, just listening very carefully to what people like Ambassador William Taylor and others were saying in Kiev about what we can expect. It, it seems that th many people were citing these talking points, talking about the Ukraine NATO Commission, talking about some NATO countries providing bilateral security uh, guarantees. And to me, the, I, my takeaway from that is, all right, that's the minimum now. That's the minimum. That's not the maximum. Um, the maximum is much more than that. And, and we still got a month before the summit to get this into place. Um, that's a good way to shift gears into the, the stuff I wanted to talk about uh, that, that's going on on the Hill, Paul. So in a few minutes, we'll continue our discussion and look at how sustainable Western support for Ukraine is, as well as some initiatives coming out of the U.S. Helsinki Commission. I'd also like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Radical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington Bell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTM McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is the one and only Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, an independent, bipartisan, and bicameral commission of the United States Congress. And also joining us from the beautiful and magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn is James Scher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and in. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So just days after U.S. President Joe Biden approved the transfer of F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine, the U.S. Helsinki Commission issued a public bipartisan call for the White House also to approve sending Army tactical missile systems or ATACMS as well. The Helsinki uh, Commission has also submitted a Ukraine victory resolution in both the House and the Senate. And in early May, Helsinki Commission Chairman Representative Joe Wilson led a bipartisan U.S. delegation to Germany, Poland, and Ukraine to coordinate support for Kyiv. These initiatives come amid rising concern about the staying power of U.S. and Western support 
for Ukraine. Paul, you are knee deep in these initiatives. I see your fingerprints all over them when I when I when I when I read them. Uh, explain to our listeners what is the commission doing here because it does really appear to be leading in Congress and keeping this issue on the agenda. Why is it doing what it's doing, and what effect do you see this having? Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a lot of I think really substantive um, you know proposals we put forward. I you know, I mean, the Ukraine victory resolution is substantive, but it's also, I mean, it's, it is a answer to the question of how does this end? The discussion, you know, as I briefly mentioned at the top, you know, just a, a, a few months ago in DC seemed to be this endless circular discussion of like, how does this end? How does this end? How does this end? And everybody, everybody <laughs> gave their take, you know, I mean, you had, you had Richard Haas and, uh, you know, Council of Foreign Relations president, you know, publishing a foreign affairs piece where he was like, well, you know, Everybody's got to give a little something, take a little something. It's like, oh, my God. You know, and it's just kind of like, no, no, you need to win the war. That's it. You know, um, so, I mean, the Ukraine victory resolution was kind of like coming back from Ukraine where where the Ukrainians were just distraught by all of these Western experts and the National Security Council and all this other kind of language that had been coming out, basically seeming to indicate that the West was ready to push Ukraine to some uh, you know, sort of quote unquote negotiated settlement, which we all know would have been some level of surrender, Russian victory. I mean, anything short of full Ukrainian victory is Russian victory. Um, and we thought we needed an answer to that. So we put together this very brief resolution. It's all based on commitments the United States has already made, right? I mean, like we recognize the borders of Ukraine. We have already committed in 2008 that Ukraine would be in NATO. Um, and of course, the huge body of international law, including a recent UN General Assembly decision entitles Ukraine to reparations. So the the resolution is very simple. It goes through kind of all, you know, the 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 whereas clauses on uh, mentioning Bucharest, mentioning the UN decisions, mentioning Russia's invasion, men, re, mentioning in particular how critical this is for U.S. national security that Ukraine win. And then saying there's three conditions, essentially, the Ukrainian victory, and that is the restoration of 1991 borders, the admission of Ukraine to NATO and other Euro-Atlantic institutions, and then um, reconstruction and, um, you know, accountability for Russian war crimes, so justice. And, you know, we've had a lot of support. It's been introduced bipartisan in both the Senate and the House. Uh, we're getting a lot more co-sponsors now. But, I mean, it, after we introduced this already, even before it passed, we've got the State Department now picking up our 1991 language. We've kind of already been changing the dynamic that, the you know, 1991 borders language. Um We've already been changing the dynamic on how this is talked about in Washington, because this is it's kind of like it's very funny in Washington. I think you guys are also know this just from your, um, you know, your work in 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 this space. Uh, sometimes you just need to provide the language that people can use to talk about victory. Right. Well, I mean, like people talking points, basically. Well, yeah, exactly. And it's like, OK, what does it mean? What does victory mean? Well, here's what it means. And it's very simple. You can say it. It's less than five words. 1991 borders, NATO justice, you know, and it's it's done. That's 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 what Ukrainian victory is. And then people are like, oh, OK, yeah, no, we can do that. You know, <laughs> um, it's it's just it's extraordinary how people get so caught up in this circular, warmed over reasoning on, uh oh, you know, we need to go diplomacy negotiations. Why haven't we tried diplomacy? No, we'll do that after, you know, the Russians leave Ukraine. James, can I follow up on this? Because preoccupied me a long time, for a long time. We, we've long been accustomed, quite rightly, when we're looking at adversaries and particularly individuals like Putin to talk about their psychology. I'm more impressed by the sociology of key players and the psychology, the upbringing they've had, 
the education they have had, the norms that surrounded them. And having uh, had a lot of my education in the United States, in many of the same establishment institutions that some of the people you mentioned have come from, uh, you could just now see that this old paradigm of ideas, which is based on common security culture, understanding your adversary is also your partner. There was influential, very influential uh, writing done on adversary partnerships after the Cuban Missile Crisis, security dilemmas, all this. All this is very, very deeply entrenched. And I have had personally to unlearn it. The whole Clausewitzian Leninist perspective is totally different. It's coldly rational, but it's totally different. And part of the problem we had even going into the war is that the very steps that were seen in Washington as being provocative and creating a danger, uh, in fact, were read in the opposite way in Moscow because they have a completely different calculus. Now, I think in Europe, again, largely because Eastern Europe has had the same historical experience as Russia and Ukraine in many ways, the, uh, the framework has been changing of late more rapidly than in the United States, but the weight of these old paradigms and these ways of looking at things in the States, I see it as being very, very strong. And I would join you in saying the paradigm is wrong. And of course you need to describe the realities as we understand them in different language. Uh, but you also need to expose what is wrong. Forgive a plug on my part. Uh, the Russia-Eurasia program in Chatham House, which has already turned out two publications about myths and misconceptions regarding Russia, yes. we're producing very soon now a third one about the war, about you know various, uh, various hard and true notions about the war that are wrong. And I have a short chapter uh, responding to the maxim that all wars end in negotiation. Well, they don't. Have a look out for it when it's a yeah. No, we'll 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 do more than that. We'll do a show on it, James. When it comes okay. up, okay. <laughs> Can I, James? Because because you're so right on this, and I think it's just like really important. And and I think that you've pointed out correctly that you know I mean America's having a having a tough time here, with maybe the exception of again this kind of core of um, core of congressional leadership and some of the disrupting we've been able to do. But this this paradigm's hanging very heavy around our necks, and I think that that's also in part because of the Iraq war and the Afghan pullout, there's kind of a feeling, a very heavy feeling on the shoulders of Americans that, oh, are we going to get stuck in another long-term conflict? Are we going to get, or are, are, are we going to end up having troops on the ground? Some, you know, um, well, some, some state department friends were, were, were concerned about that. If we, if we lean too heavily into victory, are we committing essentially to ensuring that victory occurs so that if, 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 Ukraine starts to lose. Does that mean we need to put U.S. troops in and 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 all this sort of thing? And I mean, it's it's been very difficult, I think, for a lot of Americans to be able to see that this is this is more like Hitler invading Poland than it is like George W. Bush invading Iraq. You know, I mean, this right. is, this is this is a this is a fundamentally different black and white sort of interstate war than you know the experiences of of the mid. In the early and mid 2000s but those but those lean those weigh very very heavy on american 
political culture. And that's that's that I think also helps to explain, I think, your correct observation that the United States has been lagging. It's not just Americans. Uh, forgive me, but, it, it, but it's illustrative of a broader problem. I uh, was lecturing to a national defense college in Europe, a NATO defense college, not not the NATO defense college, a national defense college of a NATO member in Europe, uh, who I lecture to um, at least annually. And at the end of it all, a very quite a senior person from that a NATO ally said, you know, I accept all of that and so on. But when you look at the long term, what then, uh, how then are these differences between ourselves and the Russians going to be narrowed and ultimately resolved? And I said, they probably can't be. Yeah. Just this is the hardest thing for us to wrap our heads around. Exactly. But yeah. Yeah. So then, well, does that mean war? No, of course it doesn't. It didn't mean war with Stalin. We built NATO, we built the European coal and steel community, we started all that. Nobody asked what Stalin thought about it, whether he liked it or not, whether it allowed him to save face or gave him room. We made ourselves secure, and at the same time we were very prudent. There were clear prohibitions. Read the original George Kennan, read yeah. you know, the old long telegram, you don't go into the adversary's territory and try to uh, and muck around with this political system and political order. There are things out of prudence we don't do. Um, so, you know, but th this is, you have to remind people, and this is recent history. Yeah. This is not the defeat of Napoleon or even of Hitler. This is relatively recent history, and people have lost all consciousness of it. Paul, I want to get a sense of what else you got cooking because your record of success is 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 rather rather impressive here. You you called for the F-16s. Days later, the president appeared to sign off on it. You came right back at him with the calls for the attackums. I'm waiting for a White House announcement any minute. Now I'm just joking, but you know, I mean, but what do you, there there are other things that are out there that people would like to see. One of these is declaring Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. Now that is something only the State Department can do, of course. Only the executive branch can do, but the legislative branch can voice its opinion about this, and that would carry some weight. Um, so that's that's one thing. Up, do do you have uh, without getting too far ahead of your skis or getting you in trouble with your bosses? Uh, you got anything else cool cooking over there? Sure. Yeah, I've got, I got plenty. You know, it depends <laughs> depends on your tastes. You know, um, well, well, look. I mean, you know, first of all, attack him should have been delivered a year ago. I mean, we we already got out of the president just, you know, a couple days ago a statement that attackums are in play. They're in play again, even though the right. previous answer was no, 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 no. So I mean, it's, you know, I there, I I I do actually believe we're going to get to attackums, particularly now that there's just no excuse any longer. I mean, that's the last it, system that they're asking for that we haven't given. I think right, but beyond that, it's also kind of like, like, okay, you're worried about escalation, but the Brits have given storm shadows. So what's the deal now? You know, I mean, it's like right. at this point, it doesn't even make basic sense. So I think the attackums are going to go. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of other, you know, proposals, a lot of other initiatives we're working on. I mean, the one really critical initiative that you know you're going to see more of i think in the near future um uh i i i, <laughs> I know on good authority you're going to see more of it is uh the confiscation of russian sovereign assets yeah and this is going to do a show been, on that next week this has been a big ask for a very long time um 
And it's something that has really major implications for global finance. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it hasn't been touched. But you could absolutely do it within the confines of international law. Um, there is an extreme intuition of it to it that's like really attractive, right? It's kind of like, hey, wait a second, shouldn't Russia should pay? And we're holding a lot of Russian money, huh? You know, yeah, right, like, right. like there's kind of there's kind of the, there's kind of this you know automatic idea of isn't this just and right? Um, so there will be, you know, a forthcoming congressional push, right? Um, to to see this realized. Um, you know, there's also, of course, you mentioned the state sponsor of terror. I mean, the you, you, this this should be done. There are bills in both houses, both chambers, to do this. Um, I mean, the the State Department will tell you the major reason it's not done is because they don't they don't see what's happening in Ukraine as terror, but rather war crimes. Um, the 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 sort of real reason it's not done is because the designation of Russia as a state sponsor of terror would essentially lock it behind, you know. An iron curtain, uh, a, a legal iron curtain that it would, you know, essentially never escape from, and 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 that's also the reason why the Ukrainians and and why we want it, you know, because that's right. good. I mean, we would like right. to see, you know, I mean, we we actually see it as the the big danger, as I think we pointed out earlier in the discussion, is that you know Ukraine wins and it's oh we did it, let's go back to to normal with Russia. We we absolutely cannot allow that to happen. Right. So we need to maintain isolation of Russia. And then I guess a final thing I will mention and there's you know there's more beyond this but uh for fear of just rambling about initiatives um the last thing is this initiative we have to designate wagner a terrorist organization um which it's already been designated a criminal organization it's been designated a criminal organization but it's not been designated a terrorist organization and once again we face off against the department of state there which similarly you know uses this kind of excuse of well it's not terrorism it's war crimes but in reality, is worried about relationships with African dictatorships that, you know, hire Wagner and would then themselves be be viewed as, you know, consorting with terrorists if 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 Wagner was designated a terrorist organization. So there, there's we're facing off against a lot of resistance from the administration on almost every front for all sorts of different reasons, which I want to say are, um, I guess, legitimate, but cowardly. <laughs> You know, like they're not, they're not, they're not like non reasons, but they're reasons we need to get over because right. we need to, we need to stop Russia, you know? Um, right. And you are certainly moving the ball here and shifting the paradigm. James, you wanted to jump in and, and uh, please do so. I also wanted to get your reaction on this, James. Like there are these concerns in Europe about the staying power of U.S. support. When you see initiatives like this coming out of, the Helsinki Commission, which is a very influential, bipartisan, bicameral part of the U.S. Congress. Does that break through? Do people see that? Does that make a difference? Uh, I, um, there's always a time in, uh, in, 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 uh, in these discussions when one has to sound iconoclastic and trellish, and this is the time. I think that even if Paul and the Helsinki Commission win these arguments, it's not going to they are not going to have much of an impact on the problems we are facing. Oh, Actually, I think, by the way, also in the military domain, yes, I would love Ukraine to have attackers just as I would love it to have F-16s and I wanted all these other things. But the main issues, I think, are much... Um, they don't grab headlines. They're much less glamorous. But the, the, the main issue 
is getting the elites of Europe and the United States and the public to understand that we live and for a long time will be living in a world with very serious and committed adversaries who know what they want, they know why they want it, they know what tools they have, they know what tools they don't, they are very cool, they are very sober, they are very ruthless, they are not going away, and even if they are defeated, they are not going to be destroyed. And we need to reinvent, rediscover, on our part, strategic thinking, long-term planning, all the infrastructure and the intellectual infrastructure that goes along with that. That is the real challenge, and it is not happening. Now, even the UK, the UK is doing even more for Ukraine than you would think. It doesn't get into newspapers, uh, but it's remarkable. But the UK, when it comes to defense as a whole, is not thinking strategically at all. It's still talking about further cuts to the army. Uh, this is, uh, well, we must not, we, we have to get away from all of this. And the elites are used to think in strategic terms. They're no longer there. They're our grandparents' generation now. And that worries me profoundly. So these things are the big challenges ahead. So we need uh, we need Churchill's Iron Curtain speech. Uh, right now. I, 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 I got I got to give you a chance to come back on that. No, that that's I I actually I actually I actually think I agree with James. Generally, I think the the much larger struggle is birthing a new paradigm in which this kind of thinking is at the forefront. I mean, I I agree with that. I, I mean, I do think each incremental step helps, and I think each one of these battles we win the closer we come to birthing that paradigm. And I think that, like, we need to win the individual battles in order to get there. It doesn't, you know, I mean, it doesn't happen all at once. Um, you know, each, each person we convince, you know, is the, it gets us closer to that goal. But, I mean, I, I think that, I think that I fundamentally agree with you in that, you know, I think the last 30 years I view as kind of a, a strategic disaster in which we allowed ourselves to believe in some fairy tale dream of liberal triumphalism that, you know, everything was just going to happen on its own and all our natural predators were gone and whatever else. And now we need to rediscover what we kind of knew from the beginning. And I've said this before, but like, you know, in the history of the United States, we used to say these things like eternal vigilance is the price of liberty and freedom is never more than a generation from extinction and things like that. We need to like re-embrace um, that perspective very much so. We we need to restudy the origins of the Cold War, which is something I'm actually doing right now. I'm reading a lot up on that because that we that that is the paradigm we kind of need to get back to. Um, I see we're bumping up against the end here. Um, any last thoughts, James, before we wrap it up for the week? No, no, I've never I've never known you to be at a loss for words, James. Well, ask me a direct question, and I might uh, ask... I, I have too many wo more words than you want. But you do... <laughs> no, uh, it's been a good discussion. Thank, thank you both very much, and very very nice to reconvene with Paul again as well. Yep. Paul, last word to you, and I know you're not going to be at a loss for words. Well, I just say it was a pleasure to see my my rail car buddy again, James. Uh, you know that was actually really exciting, fantastic discussion. Brian, always great to see you. Uh, thanks for having me back on the vertical. I mean, one thing I would like to get out there now, and this is something I, a point I made in all my media interviews that I did from Kiev um, for American media is that Kiev's protected by Patriot missiles right now. And what does that mean? That means our aid to Ukraine every single night 
is saving yep. the lives of men, women, and children. And that's something Americans need to know about. I think that's something Americans would would care about. It's a point I made a point of, of saying, because this is a very concrete thing. When you are in Kiev and you go and that siren goes off and you go into that air raid shelter, I never felt in danger for a moment. Now, Paul, you told me this. You said you'll, you're going to be surprised how safe you feel. Um, and I was thinking, I feel safe. Yeah, partially because I know there's American Patriot missiles protecting this city. Yeah. Um, so that's that's something I think we God, we need. God bless the military industrial complex. Uh, Paul, Paul was with me. We were both together in Zizhov in Poland, which is the main entrepot for uh, all the equipment going to Ukraine, at least very significant. It was palpably clear. I won't talk about how many patriots were there, but they were there. It's palpably clear that if Poland were not part of NATO and not covered by it, that this place, Russia, would just wipe this place off the map. Yep. Okay. And and Ukraine needs to be given that tangible assurance and protection, or this will not end. This only ends with this only ends with complete victory, which does not mean the destruction of Russia. It means the expulsion of Russia and the removal of its capacity to do harm and with Ukraine's integration into the West. And that is the consensus we need to build in the West. It's basically in the victory resolution from your lips, James, to God's ears. And that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Ritual Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name's Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood has been the one and only Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission independent, bipartisan, and bicameral commission of the United States Congress. And also joining us from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn has been the one and only James Scher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion and making us all a whole lot smarter. Thank you very much. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Zachary Bell is ably filling in for Lance Leakers in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our, our discussion. Zachary also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of the Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team. <laughs>